We're in the second week of a series. Uh, we started last week on a little letter in the New Testament called Philippians. It's the letter to the Philippians. And um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that this morning. It'll be in chapter 1. But uh, we began this last week talking about that this, this letter is called, so often many people refer to it as the book of joy. Uh, because it talks so much about the joy we can have in our relationship with God. And in a sense, too, another thing that it talks about, in a real sense, is that really it's probably one of the best books, one of the best letters in the New Testament that gives you a picture, a snapshot of what a mature Christian looks like and a maturing Christian church looks like as well. Uh, because while we never arrive, uh, it's, it's something that is talked about over and over, and we see that, and you will see that very firmly today. Now, today I want to start off by reading the, the last verse. Actually, it's the verse after we're going to cover today because I call it a hinge verse. It's a verse that actually uh, talks about the stuff that's before it and the stuff that's after it. So this week I'll kind of use it as a starting point, and next week I'll start from there and go further. Verse 27 of chapter 1 of Philippians says this. Paul says, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if anything describes what Paul's talking about here, I get what I want to talk about in verses 12 through 26 today really points out what that means in a real sense, what it is to conduct yourselves in a manner of the word was worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because when we read this, the very, the very first verse that we're going to look at today, verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, um, it's an interesting verse that kind of sets the stage, but you've got to kind of know what's going on before this as well to understand what he's saying. Because Paul says in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And if you don't know what he's talking about, you're going like, well, what has happened to you? Well, one thing we do know is that when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, to the Philippian church, the church that he planted probably 10, 15 years before, what had happened is, is he is in prison. He's in a Roman prison. Uh, actually Roman, he's under house arrest and he's chained to a, to a Roman guard. And so when he writes from that location, and, but that's not all there is about this. He may be referring to stuff that we could read about and if you want to read about all the things that happened to Paul and he may be referring to, which probably happens in Acts chapter 21 through Acts chapter 28, there's this whole, whole bunch of stuff that happens to him. It begins with Paul's illegal arrest in the, temple, uh, in, in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews had thought that he had desecrated the temple. Uh, the Romans thought he was an Egyptian renegade who was on their most wanted list. And Paul became the focal point of both political and religious uh, plotting. And he remained a, a prisoner uh, before this in a place called Caesarea for two years. And when he finally appealed to Caesar, which was something that Roman citizens could do, uh, he was sent to Rome. But en route... If it wasn't bad enough to be sent to Rome to go, to, to go through a trial, en route we read in Scripture that he was shipwrecked. And the account of that storm and Paul's courage and faith is one of the most dramatic pieces in all of the Bible. It's in Acts 27. And, and, and so he's shipwrecked. And then after three months of waiting on the island of Malta, Paul finally embarks on, for Rome. And then the trial he had requested before Caesar. Now, would you call those ideal circumstances in life? I mean, do you consider that as like, I mean, this is, this is what he's saying when he says, verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And then he goes on to explain what it is, because one of the things Paul was doing here, he was writing to his friends, the Philippians, to let him know everything's all right. Even though things may not look all right, everything is all right, because God is still being glorified. See, Paul did not find his joy in, in ideal circumstances. He found his joy in winning others to Christ. I said last week this. I said 
The two reasons that Paul found joy in his life was number one, because he had a single-minded focus. And number two, he had his priorities on that single-minded focus in the right order. Because we use a little acrostic joy, which this is it's easy to remember, to talk about those priorities that the Bible talks about. Jesus first, others second, and, and yourself third. Joy. And it, so if you can't remember that, that's your priorities, okay? That's what the Bible says. And Paul had that uh, in, in, a, in, a, in huge ways that we'll see that in Scripture. And so instead of finding himself confined as a prisoner, even though he was confined as a prisoner, Paul discovered that the circumstances he was in, in this Roman house arrest, really opened up a new area of ministry to him. I don't believe that Paul was just kind of one of these like idealistic pine of sky guys, that Paul was focused on the thing that was most important. And so he saw that sometimes circumstances really opens up new areas of ministry. And what he happened to him here, in fact, uh, th that's how the gospel originally came to Philippi because Paul had wanted to go somewhere else and to another territory, but God had repeatedly shut the door. And Paul wanted to take the, the message eastward into Asia, but Paul directed him to take it westward into Europe. And we can't imagine what the world would be like differently if Paul had done that. But God sometimes uses unusual circumstances are things to help us share the gospel and direct our paths. And so in Paul's case, we're going to look at today in verses 12 through 26, three things that helped him take the gospel uh, to places that he probably would not have had without these circumstances. And so the three things that we're going to look at, first of all, uh, in verse 12, going back to that, it says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Verse 13 and 14 kind of, or verse 13 begins to flesh that out a little bit. We're going to call this Paul's chains. Paul's chains, he says, it helped me to help the gospel to advance. Philippians 1 verse 13, as a result, because I'm in these circumstances, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You know, the Romans thought they were chaining him up and that was a bad thing. Paul saw it as an opportunity, an opportunity to advance because here he was to begin with, these chains gave Paul contact with people he normally would not have contact with. He was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman elite guard, Praetorian guard. And what he would do is every six hours, the guard would change. And so every six hours he had a new Captive audience, literally. And can you imagine what went on during those six-hour shifts? Now, sometimes they had to sleep, of course, but generally during this time, they were chained. These soldiers, these, these Roman soldiers who didn't want nothing to do with Christianity were chained to a man who prayed without ceasing, a man who was constantly counseling people about their spiritual condition, and it was repeatedly writing letters to Christians and churches throughout the empire. And I'm sure, and we know this to be the case, it was not long before some of these soldiers, because of this, because of this constant uh, um, uh, availability to the gospel, began to see uh, some, had questions, and Paul answered their questions, and these soldiers put their faith in Christ. Many of them did. And so it's something that he says, well, man, I'll, that's, that's, part, that's a bonus, I'm chained to these guards. They can't get away. And so they think they got me. I got them. And that's what Paul was like. He said, hey, because of my circumstances, the guards are doing it. But also, 
Paul's chains gave Paul contact with another group of people. Because why was he in chains? He was there to go to trial. And, and, and as he went to trial, the, the reason for the trial was because Paul was in Rome uh, as, an, as an official prisoner. And the Roman government was trying to determine whether the official status of this new Christian sect that Paul was talking about and t- preaching about, was it merely another sect of the Jews? Was it uh, something new and possibly dangerous? So what did they have to do? They had to read up on Christian doctrine. And here he was, he had the opportunity to go and explain Christian doctrine to him in a trial setting. See, Paul saw this as opportunities that he would never have had anywhere else. He didn't see his chains as something necessarily negative. He saw it as an opportunity to serve, which was his greatest priority, and that was Christ. I believe the secret to to joy, one of the secrets of joy we see here is this. When you have that single mind, you look at your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel. And you rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did, did not do. And so we see that here. That's the first thing we see here. And then Paul, it says also, he's changed, also affected another group, it says. In verse 14, Paul's chains not only gave, contact, gave him contact with the lost, but they gave also courage to the saved. Um, Philippians 1.14, and because of my chains, he says, most of the brothers and sisters, that's talking about other Christians, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What he saw taking place and what encouraged him was that his courage in prison and his rejoicing in prison in the midst of this, this, this uh, circumstance that most people would see as being bad, uh, it gave the other Christians around him who were in manner, uh, ministering to him, it gave them fresh courage when they saw Paul's faith and determination. Um, the word here, when he used the word uh, proclaim, it says they proclaim the God's word. It doesn't mean preach. Rather, it means everyday conversation is what the word means in Greek. And, and there's no doubt that many of the Romans were discussing Paul's case because it was like headlines. And so, but the thing was, is they discussed that the Christians had opportunities of sharing with others. And it says they did it boldly and without fear uh, about what was going on here. So often in life, it's really easy to get discouraged because discouragement has a way of spreading, right? It's really easy to spread discouragement. But you know that joy also has a way of spreading as well? Um, encouragement, joyful, Paul's joyful attitude seemed to have spread among the people. And because of his attitude toward and his way he was encountering his, his time in chains. So that was number one. Paul says, hey, my chains, hey, you think they're bad? They're actually not so bad. The second thing that Paul says about, that, that we see here about his single-minded purpose, and this, this second part is what really kind of blows me away, because I'm going like, I don't, I don't think I'm there yet, just to be honest with you. You'll see it in a minute here. You're probably not there yet either. But Paul says this, uh, it, it's about his critics. In, in Philippians 1 verses 15 through 17, it says, it is true then that some, these kind of changing gears, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put, there for, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who preach out of envy and rivalry, um, preach out of Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you believe somebody would do that? I mean, some people, church people, would have envy and rivalry. They would see it as competition. No, we don't do that today, do we? 
I mean, every denomination, every group of Christians just works as lockstep together. We're just all one. If you don't know better, you haven't been around church very long. See, the people that have given me the greatest joy in life are church people, and the people that have given me the greatest pain in life are church people. Probably you too. And I tell you, I mean, for years, when I was in Virginia, we don't have a lot of it here, but in Virginia, we, I was part of, the, of, a, of a local Southern Baptist denomination there, and we were part of the national denomination. But locally, we had 72 Southern Baptist churches in my county. Yeah, it's a lot. And we'd have meetings once a month. We called them pastor's meetings. I hated going, you going like, oh, don't you love to go? No, I hated going to pastor's meetings. You know what we did at pastor's meetings? I didn't do it, but I, that's why I quit going. But they go in and they start talking about, you know, the first thing is, how's your church going? Now, that sounds like a great first line, right? They didn't start telling about all the people they had saved. Not the church, not God had saved. They had saved. And all the wonderful things happened in their church. How big's your church now? Let's start talking about that. And so it's kind of a competition type thing. And I'm going like, dudes. I thought we were all on the same, I thought we were all on the same team. I thought we were supposed to work together. I mean, one of the hardest things in the world, Chris can tell you this in ministry, is to try to get other ministers from other churches to work with you and doing a project together. Youth does a little bit better. Not a lot better, but a little bit better. You know, and you know, that's been one of my greatest just angst in, in scripture and in, in ministry so, so far is to try to get other pastors to, to join together. It's like we have this, it's almost like competition. We're not in competition with each other. We're in competition against the devil and Satan and his, his minions. And so the problem is here, Paul sees this. He sees it here, and it happened back all the way back in the New Testament times. Paul's saying, some of these guys are preaching Christ. They are preaching Christ now, that's what he says. But they do it for the wrong reason. See, Paul's aim was to glorify Christ and get people to follow Christ. His critics' aim, he said, was to promote themselves. But then Paul says something. This is the part that blows me away. Paul's attitude toward this. He said, there's these guys that are preaching, and they're, they're going like, well, Paul, you know, are, are you for me or are you for Paul instead of are you for Christ? Then Paul, verse 18, says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I had to, last week I told you I repented of one sin. I'm repentant of another sin here. Um, I don't always rejoice when somebody who gives me a hard time, who's a critic of mine, is doing things that even though they might be, you know. I mean, so often we get, people have envy of other pastors and other things or other churches and other things that are going on. So often I don't, don't rejoice, but Paul was going like, he's going like, These, there's some guys out there. Man, they don't like me. They don't like what I do. But they're preaching Christ. And all. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter that I don't like them. They don't like me. Because it's not about me. The purpose that Christ has preached is more important. It trumps everything else. And so what I have to do is I'll rejoice. It has nothing to do with their motives. He said, God can figure that part out. I don't have to figure that part out. And I'll just tell you this, criticism is usually very hard to take, particularly when we were in difficult circumstances as Paul was. But how often can we rejoice with others who criticize us if they're doing something maybe just different than we are? You know, I'm glad that there's people who go to other churches that they like them because it may be different in the worship style. It may be different in the way they teach. It may be different in different things. It's not the, the issue is that Christ is preached. 
and that God is glorified. That's what Paul said. And then Paul says in verse 18b and 19, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul seemed to have a little bit of a positive attitude here because the thing is this. Paul obviously here expected his court case to turn out good, which meant he probably would uh, be released. And he said he re- the reason he did this was not because he was smarter than everybody else and he had the best lawyers, but because of the prayers of his friends and the provision of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul was not dependent upon his own resources. He was dependent on the generosity, uh, the generous resources of God, ministered through by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, Paul understands that, that, that hopefully that might happen for him. But it leads him to something else. He's going like, because he might be released... Paul began to share something else here that's important. And this is the third thing that Paul uses. He, he says, my chains are something that, that have caused things to go well. My critics have caused, have caused the gospel to go forward, and so I'm rejoicing in that. But number three was his crisis he was going through. Because of Paul's chains, Christ was, knowing, Christ was known. Because of Paul's critics, Christ was preached. But three, third thing is his crisis. What's the crisis? Well, it's explained in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Because this is what he says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted. Now, other translations use the term magnified. In my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul was starting to have this crisis here about asking the question, is it better to live or better to die? And he points that out in just a minute. See, it was possible, even though Paul's initial preliminary trial had gone well, it was possible that Paul would be found a traitor to Rome and then executed. The final verdict, however, was still yet to come, and so he didn't know what was going to happen. And so Paul was debating this. You're going to like, you're debating whether you want to live or whether you want to die? Yes. Because Paul in verse 21, (coughs) in verse 21, he shares with us the key verse that has come to mean something special to me, particularly this week. (coughs) Because Paul was dealing with this, what he says this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul was not afraid of death because he said, yeah, if I live, I live for Christ. That's my number one priority. But if I die, that's even better because I get to be with Jesus now. I want to tell you, this week, this week is, um, you never know. I I knew weeks ago we were going to preach on, I was going to preach on the day. Weeks ago. But I didn't know what was going to happen this week. And God illustrated this verse in so many ways this week, but particularly in what happened this past Monday and through the end of the week. I think most of you probably know, if you don't, we had a young lady in our church, uh, Sarah Blanchard, was in a car accident last Monday morning and, and died. And then on Friday was the funeral and 
Dan did a marvelous job of doing the funeral and, and, and uh, some other folks as well. But um, like I said, I knew I was going to preach on this to, to, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And, and then I heard the, the testimony that first came through her obituary written by her sister. And then the testimonies that was given. I thought I'd get through second service better than first service. First service, I was a wreck. I barely got through this. Because the testimony of Sarah's life is exactly this. For to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. I first read this. I'm going to read part of her obituary. Remember, this is written by one of her, be- her best friend, her sister, who did everything with her. So when Sarah leaves her, love- her beloved ones behind, she also leaves behind a legacy. Sarah was a genuine Christian. Every soul who met her knew of her passionate love for Jesus. Her mission in life was to bring glory to God and to turn every heart to our Savior, especially nurturing our already formed relationships to that end. She had a special talent for learning and teaching and used it to assist Christians in their walk. She loved exploring God's word and revealing it to everyone she knew. The best way to honor her life would be, this is her sister saying what Sarah's purpose would be, the best way to honor her life would be to discover God, form and grow a relationship with him, discover his word, and discover his word which she loved. She would be so honored, humbled, and glad to know that her death brought others to Christ and especially God's love, knowing she can see you again in heaven. I first read that as I was standing in line. Somebody kept saying to me, I was standing in line to greet the family, and and, and somebody said, have you read the obituary? Have you read the obituary? And I'm going like, no, I haven't read the obituary. And I'm going like, what's the big deal? Obituary is usually dry. Just facts. But this was different. And so, first read that. And then at the service on Friday, first of all, if you were there, I don't know about you guys, but I was blown away by what Kevin, her boyfriend, soon to be fiance, she had been visiting up in Bloomington on Sunday night. She was on her way home Monday morning when she died. What he had to say. Because I knew Sarah. I didn't know her as well as Dan did. That's why Dan has known her for eight, nine years as she served back in Kidstown as a worship leader. She and her sister. And Kevin, when he said what he said, because Tammy said she didn't know what he was going to say. When he said how much he loved her, which is what we expect him to say. But then he said, but I know this, God loves her more. And there's probably nobody she'd rather be seen face to face right now than her, than her Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as much as I miss her right now, he said, I know she's rejoicing because she believes to die is gain. She, he didn't exactly say that, but I thought about that verse when he said that. Then when her sister Lizzie got up and said what she said and her her dad 
Scott, I don't know how they did it truthfully. I've done 300 plus funerals in my ministry and, and I don't know how I could do my, my own kid's funeral or participate in it. But then Dan got up and Dan said something that kind of blew me away. I don't know if it blew you away, Liad. But he started talking about Sarah's character. And he said this, he said, and your daughter was sitting right next to you. I saw it. His daughter too. (laughs) It kind of works that way. He said, Sarah was the kind of person whose character was such that I hope my daughter has that character too. That is saying a lot. And then he began to share about three things that he's seen in her over the years, which in a sense was exactly what God would have wanted Dan to share. Dan was so stressed this week about that. I know he was. He, he worries about every word and and I appreciate him so much, but um, God just used that in so powerful ways. That day, I had a conversation that afternoon with one of the family members, extended family members, and saying, I don't know how, God, how Tammy and Scott do it. And I said, because they have Jesus in their heart. And they trust him. And they trusted their daughter's life and future and present. With him. They're, they're single-minded. Little did I know weeks ago that I would be, when I was going to preach on this, this verse, that God, in his miraculous mercy, I don't think he makes it happen. I just think it, it allows, but he allows us to take those things and bring it to, to, to fruition in a sense and help us to understand things better. Let me complete the passage if I can. Paul confessed that he was facing a difficult decision, that he didn't know if he wanted to live or die. I don't know if you can counter that. I thought this morning in first service, Lisa Lee, one of our administrative assistants this year, this week, uh, earlier in the week, uh, she, uh, they had a funeral service for her 98-year-old grandma. And uh, she was sharing with me how her 98-year-old grandma had been talking for a while about being ready to go with God. She wasn't afraid of dying. And I thought about the conversations I had five years ago with my dad who's gone through all kind of medical issues and can't really do much in life anymore. And how he was wishing that he could go would be. Every time I talk to him now, he keeps saying things like, well, you know, why does God keep me here? I want to go to be with him. It is not because he's just fed up with life, because he really believes that it's going to be better. That to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Not just a little bit of gain, it's a huge gain. And we don't want to get there any sooner than we have to, but let me tell you, I think this is a picture of maturity in the Christian life. How do you deal with death? So Paul continues on here in verse 22 through 26, talking about, he says, and so he's kind of debating himself. He's going, if I am to go on living in the body, his body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, die, and be with Christ, which is better by far. So that's what Paul believes, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body and with the whole body of Christ. And he says in verse 25, convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. See, Paul was willing, even though he desired more than anything, to leave this earthly life and to be with God. He was willing to postpone going to heaven in order to help Christians grow because he was so single-minded. And you think that's enough. Paul, it says in Scripture, was even willing to go to hell in order to win their loss to Christ. You know that? Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. This is what Paul says about a group of people that he's ministering to. With Christ as my witness, I'll speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my brothers and sisters. And then he says this, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. See, Paul is so single-minded that it's not about him. I mean, yeah, he's going like, well, I'd, I'd like to go and to, to, be, to be with see Jesus Christ face to face. But he said, I'm willing to stay here if that's what God wants me to do. I'm willing to go to the depths of hell if if that would help people to come to Christ. That's how single-minded he was. That's incredibly single-minded. But I would say that Paul probably was one of the most joyous people we see in Scripture because in the midst of all these circumstances that we would consider bad, he still had joy. See, death had no fear for Paul. It simply meant, as the word says, departing. You know what that word means? It says, as I, depart, I like to depart. This word was a word in the Greek. It was, it was used by soldiers. It meant to take down your tent and move on. I mean, isn't that a great picture for the Christian of death? The tent we live, on, live in is taken down at death and the spirit goes home to be with Christ in heaven. It's also, uh, it was also used as a political term. It describes the setting free of a prisoner to depart. God's people are in bondage because of the limitations of the body and the temptations of the flesh, but death will free them. Can I tell you how many conversations I've had with people over the years who are struggling physically and, and they're going like, man, I just want to get free from this. It's a picture. Finally, death was departure was a used a word used by farmers. It meant to unyoke the oxen. Paul had taken Christ's yoke, and the Bible says in Matthew that it's an easy yoke, but for for some people it's a heavier yoke than others. And the reality is Paul carried a lot of burdens for a lot of churches and a lot of people. And he's going like, yeah, I'd love to go to be with God because, because if I do so, I wouldn't have these burdens anymore. They will be unyoked. My earthly work will be completed. See, no matter how you look at it, nothing can steal a person's joy if he possesses or she possesses a single mind. If we say, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I believe Philippians 1.21 becomes a valuable test for our lives. So how would you fill in the blanks? For to me, to live is blank, and to die is blank. Let me give you some options that so often in our culture, why we find ourselves so much with no joy. For to me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For to me to live is, is, is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. 
I believe the only thing that we can do and we can learn from Paul is this. We must echo Paul's conviction if we're going to have joy in spite of our circumstances. We're going to have to share in and focus upon the one mission that God has given to all of us. The mission of putting Christ first, others second, and ourself third. And when we do that, even though it sounds totally opposite of what culture says, joy is the result. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning for the fact that you love us in spite of our inability, God, to love you in the same way. God, I'm amazed sometimes by the attitude that Apostle Paul had, that in the midst of chains that he would have joy. Even when he was being criticized by people who were Christians but didn't agree with him and had problems with him and sometimes did things out of envy and jealousy that he didn't have any problem with them as long as the ultimate end was that Christ was preached and people came to know him. It wasn't a competition. It was a cooperation in the gospel. And even in the crisis of faith he had about wanting to be with, with you, Jesus, uh, in heaven, knowing that that's by far the best place to be, he had no fear of death that he was even willing to stay upon this earth and deal with all the critics and all the chains and all the things that were possibly to come ahead because if it would advance the gospel and help more and more people come to Christ. He was even willing, as he said in Romans, to go to hell. It would help people to go to heaven. God, when we have that single-mindedness of purpose, everything else becomes secondary. Our positions, our possessions, our power, all the things that we, we strive for in life, God. And so, God, help us to have that single-mindedness that Paul had and to have the priorities clearly set in our life of Jesus first, others second, and ourselves third. Thank you, God, for your incredible love for us and your word from Philippians that really helped us to see, God, what a mature Christian and what a maturing church looks like. Guide us to not only hear the words, but to apply them in our lives every day. We ask these things in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.